We are in our second message on forgiveness. And we saw last week how using modern day models concerning forgiveness leave us woefully short in our relationships. And that when God's perspective on reality is rejected, we are going to have an inadequate diagnosis and remedy on those relationships. We noticed how when people reject God's law, uh, this hampers the ability to understand forgiveness. I mean, if you don't have any moral category, how are you going to understand what forgiveness is, what sin is, that kind of thing? So even though people reject God, even though they reject God's moral order, that doesn't mean that they stop creating moral absolutes themselves. So it's like you can't get away from it. We live in this universe that God has created with a moral order. Even though I deny God, I deny morals, I still act like they exist. Even the hardcore atheist. Just take a look at the Me Too movement or the current mores on racism or just pick your, pick your notion. These are edicts that are the new moral absolutes when on the other hand I'm saying moral absolutes don't exist. In addition, every human being has a conscience, right? I mean, we go to bed sometimes feeling guilty, feeling ashamed. I mean, what is that conscience indicating if not some kind of objective plumb line? Otherwise, it's really a cruel trick by God or it's an evolutionary tool if it doesn't relate to a real moral order. And that evolutionary tool would be just for cultural mores. So just like the wind, but that doesn't make sense. You know, in Tim Keller's book on forgiveness that I quoted last week, we read this quote, modern culture has done everything to say we don't believe in God. We don't believe in heaven. We don't believe in hell. We don't believe in moral categories. Kafka says it hasn't helped. If anything, it has made it worse because our guilt now can't be eradicated. We can say, I don't believe in sin, I don't believe in guilt, and yet there's a voice in us that calls us cowards, calls us fools, makes us ashamed, makes us say we're not living up. There's something going on. What is it? Secular culture has no definitive answer, end quote. We also saw how the church often misunderstands forgiveness or can even deny the practice of forgiveness while usually talking a good game about it. There's also a prevalent idea in faith communities that tout forgiveness without an idea of justice, without a thought of victims in abusive relationships. Rachel Denhollander, a gymnast, who I quoted last week, uh, was the first person to come out about the sexual abuse of Larry Nasser, the U.S. gymnastics physician that abused hundreds of young women. Den Hollander is also a Christian. She told of churches mishandling allegations or denying them altogether. She said, and I quote, that there was teaching on concepts like unity, forgiveness, and grace that resulted in abusers being forgiven while victims were silenced by being characterized as bitter, end quote. We noticed 
that forgiveness is the job of each individual Christian 100% of the time. It only takes one person to forgive. But it takes two people to reconcile. And reconciliation is not always possible on earth. Trust is not always gained by perpetrators. Repentance can fall woefully short. Now, we are not to withhold forgiveness. Whether the person is asked to be forgiven or not, I want my heart clean, I want to choose to forgive. But it is not wise to put ourselves back into relationships that habitually cause harm. Now listen, putting these principles into practice are messy and difficult. I am not saying this is easy. Especially when you're talking about your family, right? When you're trying to do this. But clearly God has called us into living extraordinary lives of forgiveness. And I think it's one of the premier characteristics of being a Christian. It is not a feeling. It is me deciding to let go of an offense. It's deciding not to get back, not to seek vengeance, and let the other person off from the debt of the offense. Vengeance is desiring the perpetrator to suffer, but that's different from justice. Justice is doing what is best for the community, uh, my family, and that includes a family of faith or the larger society. Right after I preached this sermon last week, the next day, I had lunch with somebody I have not talked to in decades. And the last communication was not good. And I kind of wrote this person off, never again. Last communication with Janet and I, and this guy was like a zinger, just right in our heart. And I'm like, all right, dude, that's the way you want it, I'm done. So decades had passed. And then he comes up and says, hey, you think we can have a relationship? (laughs) I wasn't eager, I got to tell you. And God was like, okay, we'll see how much you mean this thing about forgiveness. I did the best I could do. And I'm just telling you this because we're all human. I said, listen, I'm open to a relationship, but it's going to take a while for trust to be rebuilt. I'm open that we can reconcile. I want that. And I think if there's forgiveness, you also want the reconciliation, but it may or may not happen. So I can say, I can't give you promises, but I can say I'm willing to at least take these first few steps. And again, that was the best I could do in the moment. So with this as a review... I want us to proceed to our text in Luke chapter 7. And I'm not going to be able to exegete this whole passage today, but I want to call out principles that will add to our discussion on forgiveness today. Let's all stand as we look at Luke 7, starting with verse 36 to the end of the chapter. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house And took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, where she learned that he was reclining 
at table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman that is, this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Uh, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. (coughs) One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you judge rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, we need a supernatural transaction daily with forgiveness so that we can love well and forgive well. Make it so with us as a congregation that our premier characteristic is love and forgiveness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. With the Pharisees, a stale soul filled with religion, is preferred over a fresh heart for God's presence. Here's a sad reality. Being entrenched in religion can limit our willingness to extend forgiveness. You see, in the religious world, the Pharisees' actions were perfectly appropriate. And according to the evangelical world, it's acceptable to condemn those who are in the same camp as the woman or some other camp. So what I want us to do is take a couple of the characters in this story and see what we can learn. So let us consider Simon the Pharisee. With him, we see that pride identifies people by their sin, not their worth. Now, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. She was not a valuable woman made in the image of God. She was not a woman with her own story. She was a sinner. 
And the reference is likely to a woman who was a prostitute. You heard that right. And Jesus forgave her. She was that kind of sinner. You know, I grew up during a time when making gay jokes was part of the norm. Not proud of it, but during my college days in Chicago, I was confronted with it in a dream of all things. And I can remember this as if it happened yesterday. In the dream, I was on the, I was in an auditorium, bottom floor by myself, and in the balcony was a man standing in the front row yelling, why don't you love me? And I remember asking the Lord, what? What does this mean? And it was clear. My attitude towards certain people, you know, the dirty ones, or at least as I thought. Certainly, that's a sin. I'm not questioning that. But my attitude sucked. Okay? I don't remember the face, but I sure remember the point. When we identify people solely by a political party, their moral choices, their race, often behind it is a devaluing, a demonizing of that person. We draw distinctions that often make us feel better about ourselves. Now, I'm not saying I know every motive in every situation, but I want to be as, as open and honest about it as I possibly can. Obviously, we're not agreeing with every behavior. But the value and worth of a human being is not based on politics, race, morality, or economics. It's much easier to forgive a human being made in God's image than an opponent that we devalue. In verse 44, Jesus asked Simon, do you see this woman? In other words, you didn't even acknowledge her. You did not listen to her. You did not hear her story. And maybe that tips us off that one of the first steps in valuing others around us is acknowledging them and listening to them, not lecturing them, listening. And the three most important words are, tell me more. Hmm. You know, the person in prison has a story. The person who has abused has a story. The person who's homeless has a story. And one of the greatest gifts to give value to others is to listen to that story. Pride identifies people by their sin, not their worth. Also with Simon, we see that unbelief cannot picture a Jesus who forgives certain sins. 
Notice also in verse 39, Simon calls into question whether Jesus is a true prophet since he associates with this woman. Now, by this time in the life of Jesus, we can be sure that his reputation had spread, that there were enough witnesses around to see all the miracles that he had done, the attestation to his deity. But the Pharisee had made up his mind. He was filled with pride. He was not going to acknowledge the need of this Messiah, the need of a Savior, especially if it meant being grouped in with sinners like that woman. And unlike the woman, Simon did not offer water to Jesus. He did not greet Jesus with a kiss. He did not anoint his head to show honor. He was warped with a view of God and specifically a view of Messiah that had stitched together some religious traditions instead of really listening and looking at the revelation of God in Christ and through the prophets. And this warped view handicapped his ability to receive and express forgiveness. Unlike fabled stories or mythical narratives, Jesus has a recorded history of loving the unlovely. And guess who the star witnesses are about that today? All of us sitting here this morning. Loving the unlovely. And walk in love. Has Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God? Next we see with Simon that hypocrisy creates a self-stylized list for holiness. Recently we had some children over to our home and one had come up within just inches of my face seemingly inspecting every part and announced something I had no knowledge of and that is I have a big nose. Oh, I loved it. So my retort to him was, you know, only people who are smart and good-looking and athletic have a big nose. (laughs) He didn't quite get the sarcasm, but we understand as adults that there is no correlation between the size of your nose and your looks, your smarts, and your athletic ability. But that is just like the evaluation, in my opinion, of religious folks in using outward signs that have little or no correlation to genuine godliness. The woman in our story was viewed by Simon as unworthy of the presence of religiously minded folks. Jesus made the point in verse 47 that whoever forgives little loves little. The obvious reference was that Simon lacked an honest self-assessment and he saw himself as not needing God. And as a result, little forgiveness, little love. They were greatly lacking. Now don't miss the obvious point here. Simon was very religious. He was a Pharisee. He was schooled in Judaic law. 
I mean, he had the right people in his religious community, and he learned not to associate with others who reduced his social capital. The woman was on the bottom of the social ladder, and yet Jesus allowed her to come close, associate with him, and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Her relationship with God is genuine, and her faith resulted, the passage tells us, with peace from God. You know, there are people that play a role to fit within a certain group. You know, you can have a person dress the part like they're part of the upper crust, but they have nothing in their bank account. Or you have religious people, yes, our brand, can do the same in feigning spirituality. When I first became pastor, I remember a family who attended, and some were taken in by this family. The combination of, I'm just laying it out here, okay, the combination of their dowdy dress and this man praying in a booming voice to some people, and, and by the way, great religious verbiage, conveyed that somehow this family was saintly. Now, I don't know what was in their heart, but I know enough having visited with them that everything was not as it appeared. And my point is you're going to need more information than some religious-sounding words and dress to generally walk with God. Churches can have a sad banana-looking building they rent, but the people inside are filled with grace, loving the Word of God, generally involved in the community, worshiping in spirit and truth. And then you could also have a large, beautiful facility, blowing, going programs, but it could be a fellowship an inch deep and a mile wide. Nothing wrong with the size, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying our assessments can be flawed. And every evangelical subculture has its own criteria. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the real deciding factors well, I think Jesus gives us some here in this story. We have to have an ongoing experience, give and take, with forgiveness and love. And having, doing that abundantly. Clearly, how we relate to one another is far more critical than a spiritual showcasing on a Sunday morning. Paul said it like this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm halfway there. Is that what he says? I'm what? Nothing. That in terms of value but in terms of my spiritual life. Listen, this is not about pitting one denomination against another. It's about the quality of our heart and relationships with people. And what Paul is saying is that you can have the outward manifestation of revered practices within your group, 
I mean, whether that's tongues, healings, praying in a flowery language, motivational sermons, new buildings, outward programs, and it can amount to zero if under the hood you walk in legalism, unforgiveness, quick judgments, and social circles that only allow the acceptable people in. We can be so beguiled by our vestiges of religion kind of like a a shiny car with a a brand new body, all shined and waxed and new, but under the hood is a Briggs and Stratton engine barely working. Again, I am not dogging these outward practices. What I'm saying is they are an insufficient barometer for true spirituality. Remember in Matthew 25? When Jesus said, I was hungry and thirsty and naked and sick, and you did nothing. The point there is that a true transformation of the heart is how you relate to those in real need. Do you love? Do you forgive? And do you do that when no one is looking? Do you do that inside your home? Now, here's a fact I'm fairly certain of, that God is not assessing the true picture of our relationships and spirituality by our Instagram and Facebook posts. He's not impressed. Next with the woman, we see this, that humility is quick to admit responsibility for sin. Notice the woman comes to Jesus weeping and expressing her repentant heart. And Jesus says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She doesn't provide any excuses or denials. She doesn't take the role of a victim. Well, you know, my mom and dad did this. Or back when I was a kid, I went to a church that, you know, we don't see any of that. Right? Experiencing forgiveness starts with humility that admits sin fully without, you know, concern with reputation. This past week in our life group, we had people sharing experiences of of real genuine heartache and how forgiveness was hard in certain situations and hard to practice. And I left so thankful for a group like that that just is expressing the reality of their lives. And that essentially is what humility is. It's speaking the truth about our own weaknesses and sins. Not about the other guys. Mine. And humility is a precursor to experiencing forgiveness. That's what this woman shows us. Next is that worship recognizes the priority of God in forgiving sin. The woman felt worthless and cheap. The only thing of value in her life was a bottle of perfume kept in an alabaster vessel for purity. Perfume made her feel special, if only for a little while. No arms of a man had accomplished that feat. There were no candlelight dinners of a committed man who made her feel worthy. 
There was no one before who validated her as a person and loved her for just being a woman, a person of worth. Every man before Jesus left her alone and empty. She had given up hope until now. And maybe some of you can remember that time in your life when you finally realized God loves me and forgives me in my sin. It was a tough exterior that she probably had to deal with, dealing with the ravages of the world that took advantage of her. But deep inside, she yearned for something that only Jesus could deliver. She heard him speak. She heard of the miracles and testimony of others. And something sparked in her soul, the lips that had tasted a a multitude of men before were now incessantly kissing the feet of Jesus. The hair that was used to attract potential customers in an unholy trade was now used to wash the feet of the Son of God. The eyes that were empty and lifeless now brought life from tearful repentance. And the perfume, the only untouched possession she had of worth, was now laid on the most holy of altars as a gift of adoration upon the head of the spotless Lamb of God. Our hearts can fully embrace that we are loved in our sin by holy God. But God showed his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's fact. You may not feel like it, but it doesn't change the fact. I know there are some people that have difficulty receiving love, believing it, but it doesn't change the fact. There are people who cannot receive it, cannot receive love. They think that everybody's against them, even though it's not the fact. And God is saying, here are the facts. And I want your head and heart to acknowledge this. He loves you. He forgives you. With Jesus, we see this that the more experience we have in the forgiveness of God, the more we forgive others. If at this point you don't think you have much to be forgiven of, then I think you've missed the point. (laughs) I mean, sin is much more than prostitution or, or grave offenses in our little bubble that we think are, you know, particularly egregious to the religious culture. Let me just throw out a few. How about arrogance? Arrogance in how we demonize others who are not in our political party or who disagree with us on moral stances on sin. That's sin. Our arrogance is sin. How about the unwillingness to reconcile with a family member or brother and sister in Christ who are at odds? That's sin. Gossiping is sin. 
the aversion to help another person in need, when you are able to and God puts it on your heart, that's sin. We could add to that materialism, jealousy, bitterness. They're all sins. Now, I'll just confess to you now, your pastor has a rap sheet a mile long. And I'm just talking about today. <laughs> Stuff of the heart, attitudes, things that go through your mind, we have all sinned. We all are beggars needing a touch from the Savior. And the greatest display of arrogance is thinking I'm anybody but that lady in that story. We all need forgiveness, and we need it every day. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's the psalmist. If the Lord were to keep tabs and not forgive us, who could stand? None of us. And the cross is the greatest demonstration of God's willingness to meet our need and to love us. Listen, forgiveness requires two experiences for us to be partakers and givers of it. There must be hum humility about the reality of our sin. But then there has to be a recognition of the inner wealth of Christ. And particularly as a Christian, that is in us. We're in Christ, Christ is in us. And he forgives us. Always overcomes the sin. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are not paupers, spiritually speaking, in Christ. By myself I am. You know, my... My mother told stories of, for Christmas, they would get a quarter wrapped in foil. Give that story to your kids when they complain that they didn't get the Nintendo machine that they wanted, all right? Sometimes, if they were living high on the hog, they would get a complete orange. This was growing up in West Virginia. She said dresses that were mended were mended from burlap sacks that they had left over. Shoes that were fixed were done with cardboard over the holes. Now, if my mother at that time would have lost $5, that would be a traumatic moment given their poverty. But later in life, my father and mother worked very hard. And as a child, I never lacked. And if my dad lost $5, that wouldn't be nearly as painful. And my friends, I'm making this point to say this. We have this ocean beyond ocean depth of forgiveness in Christ in terms of grace that's been given to you. Your identity is in Christ, not your sin. 
You are not in spiritual poverty in Christ, but you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. And do you know how deep his grace is, how deep his love is for you? You cannot measure it. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, Paul said in Ephesians. You know, if you were in spiritual poverty, you might have good reason to feel shameful. You might have good reason to berate yourself over your sin. But you are rich in Christ. Now, I get there is a weeping and confession and repentance, and there are tears in that. And that's appropriate for the Christian. But once you've done that, then there is a washing and realization of God's forgiveness and walking in our position in Christ. God is the final judge. And who we are in Christ and what we've done in Christ, God is covered. Latch on to this truth. God can overrule your heart's guilt and self-condemnation. Right? And I know some of us struggle with this. Doubts, fears about God's attitude towards us, about God forgiving us. And we think of our past, and we're filled with, with shame. I get it. But know this. Hear the facts. He says he's forgiven you. And if he says that, that's reality. That's true. And I have to tell my head and heart to quiet down if it doesn't believe that. And I have to begin to feed my heart and mind the truth of God's perspective in this. And then as a result, my dear friends, you will never begin to forgive others until you grasp how much he forgives and loves you. So, maybe the reason you're walking around in bitterness, maybe the reason that you are so judgmental and you think everybody's against you, Maybe you need to check the state of your own heart. And you didn't think you were a pauper in receiving God's forgiveness. Who am I to deny that with others? When I realize the position that I'm in, how needy I am. Let's pray.